0: Uh, Why do bad things happen to good people? It's a question that's been asked for for thousands of years. And I'm guessing by quite a number of people in Australia recently. Uh, We've just experienced one of the worst bushfire seasons on record. Did you know 27 people lost their life during the bushfires? Uh, And then that was followed with bad floods in many parts of Australia, just to top off uh, the, the, the disaster. But I guess at least we're not New Zealand with active volcanoes like Mount White that exploded last year, killing eight tourists, or earthquakes in New Zealand, like the Christchurch earthquake in 2011. 185 people were killed there with many more injured. Who do you blame when it comes to natural disasters? Who can you get angry with? Well, for many people, the answer is God. And so they refuse to believe in a God who'd let Those sorts of things happen. Now, the Bible's got all sorts of things we can say about the subject of suffering and why bad things happen. But one thing it does say is that being a Christian doesn't stop bad things from happening. I'm not sure if anyone's done the analysis, but it seems to me that God's people are just as likely as anyone else to suffer tragedy, life-threatening illness, death of loved ones, destruction of property. Uh, Maybe even more likely. Joseph's a good example of that. Uh, One of Jacob's 12 sons, his story takes up nearly the rest of Genesis from 37 all the way through to 50. Uh, And in the second verse of chapter 37, we see he's tending the flocks with the rest of his brothers. And if anyone should ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? It's Joseph. In fact, sometimes it seems that the more he does the right thing, the more trouble he gets into Part of the problem is he's Rachel's son. That's Jacob's favourite wife. And so uh, Joseph is his, Jacob's uh, favourite son, especially after Rachel has died. That's back in chapter 35. So in verse 3 of chapter 37, we're told Jacob made a richly ornamented robe for him, uh, Joseph's technicolour dream coat, if you like the musical. Now, understandably, that makes his brothers jealous. Uh, but to make it worse, Joseph is a dreamer and he has a pair of dreams whose meaning is pretty obvious. You don't need to have the gift of interpretation to work these ones out. Uh, he says that they were binding corn in a field, all the brothers, and his sheaf stood up while all the others bowed down before uh, his brother, uh, before Joseph's uh, sheaf. Another dream, verse 9, sun, moon and stars do the same thing before Joseph. And instead of just being quiet about it, which might have been a sensible thing to do, uh, he, he tells the brothers, Oh, I had a great dream last night, uh, but they're not interested because it seems like boasting, and so their jealousy gets worse. So here's Joseph dressed up in his rich robe. He's a bit like a prince, and now he's telling them about the dream that uh, they're going to bow down to him. Uh, it may as well have been a target painted on his brightly coloured coat. Second half of chapter 37, he's sent out into the fields to check on how the brothers are going and they've had enough and they want to kill him. They're away from dad. It's a great opportunity. Their first idea is to kill him, verse 19, and say a ferocious animal ate him. Uh, Reuben tries to stop them. Verse 21, the plan changes. Just take his coat, drop him in a hole, which they do. At least they won't have blood on their hands. Reuben's plan is to come back and rescue him later. The other brothers see a camel train, a load of Ishmaelites heading to Egypt. Uh, and so Judah says in verse 26, which is quite interesting, what profit can we gain? What can we gain if we just kill him, if we just leave him there? At least we can get some money. Seems to be what he's saying if we sell him. Uh, and that's what they do. Reuben comes back, perhaps he's been checking the sheep. Verse 29, he sees Joseph's gone, he's distraught. The brothers take Joseph's beautiful robe they kill a goat, they dip it in the goat's blood and they take it back to their dad in verse 32 and they say, look at this do you recognise it? Of course he recognises it. Uh, This is deceptive coat number one in these chapters. And it's just like what Jacob himself did to fool his father Isaac. Do you recognise it? Same tools, some clothing and a dead goat. Uh, He did it using those tools to convince his father that he was actually Esau. And now his sons are doing the same thing to him. At the very least, it's poetic justice, some clothing and a dead goat to fool him. And how cold-hearted can those sons be as they stand around their father who's weeping, who's broken-hearted, and the cruel sons just look on and they don't say a word. Now, we may feel sorry for Jacob here, but let's not forget Joseph Put yourself in his shoes. You're totally unaware of your brother's plans. Uh, You're walking across the field towards them. You give them a friendly wave. And as you arrive, they circle you, they grab you, they strip you. And before you know it, you're at the bottom of a well, looking up at a small patch of sky. And it gets worse. That's the best of it. The best thing that happens in your day, really, you're at the bottom of the well, because uh, before long you're dragged out and handed over as a slave the slave traders headed for Egypt. He was probably a teenager, the age of many of you guys. Well, chapter 38, the scene switches back to another brother who's just been mentioned in chapter 37. It's Judah. Here's a story to make your hair curl. This one is definitely not G-rated, so if you're uh, under 12, don't, don't go and read that one. That's just going to make you read it, I suppose, isn't it? So don't read it. Well, it's a story we're going to leave for another day. But I think chapter 38 is there to contrast with chapter 39 because the two chapters make up a couple of stories about desperate housewives. One's to do with Judah. Judah behaves disgracefully. The other one's to do with Joseph, who behaves like a thorough gentleman. Chapter 38 is a story about Tamar. She's Judah's widowed daughter in law. She's desperate for an heir to get pregnant, to have a baby. Judah mistakes her for a prostitute and says, come to bed with me. Now, they're words with an echo in the next chapter, which is why I think it's here as a contrast. Uh, We'll see a mirror image in the next chapter. Same proposition is put to Joseph, come to bed with me, but with very different results. So, enough said on 38. Let's move on to 39. The spotlight's back on Joseph. A story about another deceptive coat He's sold as a slave to Potiphar and he excels. He he flourishes. Yes, bad things are happening, but God's in charge. Somehow he's bringing blessing out of this bad situation. Uh, We're told in verse 2, The Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. Now as slaves go, Joseph's at the top of the tree, really, isn't he? He's, He's wise, he's trustworthy, he's competent. Potiphar can see that God's with him, giving him success. And so he trusts him with everything in his whole house. Uh, Verse 6 says he didn't concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Life's pretty good for both Potiphar and for Joseph. Until you hear the echo of those fateful words back from chapter 38, come to bed with me. But in the exact opposite situation. Verse 6 we read that Joseph was well built and handsome And then in verse 7, after a while, Potiphar's wife took notice of him and said, come to bed with me. Almost the exact words that came from Judah in the chapter before, but now the roles are reversed. Now, if it had been Judah in Joseph's shoes, he would have said yes in a flash, I think. If Judah was there, he'd be the one making the proposition. But here is one man from the whole family who knows the difference between right and wrong. And he does the right thing. Verse 8, he refused. I don't know whether you've ever been in a situation anything like that with some flattering attention and the opportunity to do something that's not right. But let me suggest Joseph offers an excellent model at this point. Notice how he's loyal. He says, no, he says, my master, who's your husband, by the way, he trusts me. Everything he owns is in my care. He's withheld nothing. Except you, because you're his wife. Faithfulness in marriage matters. Jacob recognises this. Uh, You throw it away, you betray your spouse, you betray the other person's spouse. Uh, And deep down, we know that that sort of faithfulness matters. But notice too, Joseph recognises he's not just sinning against people, he's sinning against God. How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Verse 11, she's relentless. Another day, there's no servants around. She tries it again. She grabs his cloak and says, come to bed with me. Joseph tears himself away and runs. Verse 12, but he left his cloak behind. Now, this is a great example, isn't it? If you're here today and and you've had that sort of temptation before, then follow Joseph's example and run away. Uh, Right through the Bible, the message is the same. Flee sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says. Flee it. Uh, Now, the opportunities in this technological age are almost limitless to be doing the wrong thing. But don't entertain it for a minute. Run away. Now, that might be literally. Uh, It might mean closing a social media account. It might mean walking down a different street quitting a sporting team, getting a new group of friends, maybe even changing a job or moving house. But flee the temptation. That's what Joseph did. Now, From this point on, once again, Joseph must be wondering what he's done to deserve such bad things happening. In a sense, he might have thought, well, if only I'd just given in, maybe everything would have been fine. Maybe life would have been better if I'd just given in to her. But here he's acted with absolute integrity And look where it gets him. Potiphar's scorned wife screams as he runs. She holds onto the cloak until her husband gets home. Then verse 17 lies to him. It's another case of a deceptive cloak. She says, this Hebrew slave came to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed, he ran and left his cloak behind. Here it is, look. Now the evidence speaks for itself. She's got the cloak. Potiphar doesn't ask questions and Joseph's thrown in prison where he stays forgotten for two whole years. And yet even there, notice in verse 21, the Lord is with him again. He's put in charge of the prisoners and he rises to the top of the heap again, just like in Potiphar's house. And so we move into chapter 40 and we read about two more dreams from two of the prisoners, king's servants, And God has a message for them and for Joseph, uh, who's the one who God gives his interpretation to. Uh, There's a cupbearer who's imprisoned. He has a dream, and God says his dream means that he'll be released. Uh, The baker is there as well, but his news is not so good. He's going to be hung. And even though Joseph gets it 100% right, and even though he asks the wine taster to put in a good word for him, he stays stuck in prison. Because the servant forgets all about him. And it's not until chapter 41, when Pharaoh has a couple of dreams himself, that anyone gives Joseph another thought, and he's stuck there for two years. So, into chapter 41, two more dreams, this time uh, by Pharaoh himself. They're dreams that are given by God. Seven fat cows are grazing, and then verse 3 seven of the ugliest, scrawniest cows you've ever seen are grazing but the skinny cows eat the fat cows. Verse 5, he dreams again, similar dream, but this time there are corn stalks instead of cows. And the next day he happens to be talking to his wine taster about his weird dreams and at that point the wine taster finally remembers and he said, I remember there was this guy in prison who could interpret dreams. So, verse 14, Joseph's dragged out of the dungeon. He comes before Pharaoh. He's about to go from zero to hero with Pharaoh. Now, I'm sure there's a bit of a rap we could probably come up with there. Uh, Zero to hero with Pharaoh. Because even though Joseph can't interpret dreams, Joseph, God, can. And Pharaoh tells him all the details. Uh, Verse 17 to 24, we get the details again. The fat cows, the skinny cows, the fat corn, the skinny ears of corn. And God tells Joseph exactly what they mean. There's going to be seven years of prosperity, followed by seven years of famine. Seven years of unprecedented economic growth, followed by the recession we had to have. And through Joseph, God is actually giving the warning uh, to Pharaoh about what's to come. You see the interesting words there in verse 32 of chapter 41? The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. Uh, this isn't a threat. Uh, it's not the opportunity to change what's going to happen. It, it seems like if you get a dream twice, that's somehow you know like a, a double, double certainty that it, it definitely will happen. So make some plans. There's no avoiding it. Uh, you know, had Jonah would would go to Nineveh, and he. Uh, warned them that their city would be destroyed but it was like a single message and they said oh we better repent and they did and God changed and didn't do it but but here he's saying this is definitely going to happen no avoiding it come up with some plans Joseph says here's the plans here's what you should do, you should find someone wise put him in charge store 20% of the harvest for the seven good years and then use that in the seven bad years. It's a good plan. Joseph recognises it and he says he knows just the man to put in charge, Joseph himself. Pharaoh says in verse 38, Can we find anyone like this man in whom is the spirit of God? Interesting comment, isn't it? Joseph is absolutely distinctive. Pharaoh recognises he's got God's spirit. And so in verse 41, Joseph's put in charge of the whole land of Egypt, he's he's gone up yet again. He gets a signet ring and a new coat, a coat that makes his old Technicolor coat look plain. He gets a gold chain round his neck, he gets a chariot, it's all part of his employment package and he oversees the economy through prosperity and then into the famine. And it all happens exactly as God had foreseen. And God had planned it. The fact is, God put Joseph through all those bad times for this good reason. It's good for Egypt, but it's also good, we find in chapter 42, especially for his brothers. They've they've been caught up in the same famine back in Canaan. And so they decide when the food runs out that they're going to head down to Egypt as well, because they've heard that's where grain is. And you can see in verse 6 of chapter 42 they arrive and they bow down before their young brother Joseph, even though they don't recognise him. And it's exactly what Joseph had dreamed would happen so many years before. Joseph's dressed up in his uh, Egyptian gear. He recognises them, pretends he doesn't. They don't recognise him. We're going to see next week how he's going to put them to the test when they don't know who he is. But what we need to do now, though, is to jump ahead to the end of this story, to to one of the key verses in the whole book of Genesis, uh, as we ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Because the fact is, if Joseph hadn't ended up in Egypt, if he hadn't been in the right place at the right time, if he hadn't risen up through the ranks uh, to be where he could ultimately save his family from extinction, then the promises of God would have stopped. They would have stopped with Jacob and his sons all dying in Canaan. It all would have come to nothing. And so we can see why bad things happened to Joseph. Joseph's brothers treated him badly. He ended up in Egypt as a slave. He spent years in prison. And so after their dad dies in chapter 50, Joseph's brothers are a little worried. And they say, what if Joseph holds a grudge? What if now that dad is dead, he comes to seek vengeance? What if he pays us back? And they throw themselves at Joseph's mercy. But have a look at Joseph's reply. Chapter 50, verse 19. Joseph says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? I'm not going to take revenge. God's the one that brings justice. And then he says this in verse 20. These are the words I want to focus on. He says, you intended to harm me, But God intended it for good, to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. So don't be afraid. God worked your wickedness for good. God uses the plans that were aimed to hurt and bring pain and revenge, and he uses them to achieve his good purposes, to direct, to guide, to raise up a spirit-filled saviour. God gives Joseph his spirit so he can make it through tough times. He can be wise, he can succeed, he can save his family line. God uses those bad things to bring good. Now I wonder if that reminds you of another situation of Jesus, uh, the one who God poured his spirit out onto, uh, the one who leaders and friends betrayed. He was arrested, imprisoned, spat on and ultimately crucified. But God used all of that for good. Uh, The perfect innocent one died to pay our penalty and then saves us. The early disciples understood the way the good came out of the bad in Jesus' life. Acts chapter 4, if you're a quick Bible flipper, you might want to flip over towards the end of the Bible, Acts chapter 4. Peter and John have just got out of prison been arrested for preaching and they arrive back at the, at the bunch of uh, Christians who are in a home and they're praying. Acts chapter 4 verse 27 and, and the Christians pray this, they say, Herod and Pilate and the Romans and the Jews conspired against your holy servant Jesus whom you appointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, they're praying this on the other side of the resurrection. Uh, These Christians recognise that evil men killed Jesus for evil purposes, but that God intended it all for good, to accomplish what he achieved, the saving of many lives. Uh, It's just like Joseph. And so we need to keep all of that in mind uh, as we look at our lives and we wonder and we ask the question, why do bad things happen? Paul says in Romans 8.28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And we know that, and yet often it's hard to see, isn't it? It's hard to see it in our lives, it's hard to see the good, and it takes stories like the story of Joseph or the story of Jesus to realise that good does come. And for Joseph, at least, it took years, didn't it? But look at where Paul goes on to direct our attention. Romans 8.28 He said that God works good but he points us not to look at the bad that's happening in our life but to but to look to Jesus. He's the reason we can be hopeful that good will come out of the difficulties in our life. Uh, so verse 31 of Romans chapter 8 Paul says if God is for us, who can be against us? How can he be so confident? Well he goes on God, who didn't spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with his Son, give us all things? He's done the greatest good. He's going to bring further good out of our difficulties. Look to the cross when you wonder where the good is. As we try to work out whether God has planned what's best for us, we need to ask, as we ask that question, uh, why do bad things happen? Uh, Paul goes on. Who can bring any charge against those whom God's chosen? It's God who justifies. Who condemned? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Uh, Think of all the bad that might happen to you. Can trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, sickness, uh, nakedness, danger or sword. Nothing can separate us from God. None of those bad things. So when you're in your dark days and nothing seems to be going right uh, there's every reason for you to keep trusting God. Paul says we can be sure of it. The cross is our guarantee that our God is reliable and trustworthy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we pray that uh, as we travel through life Uh, There'll be ups and downs, but we pray as we go through the the low points uh, that you'd help us to trust you. Uh, We don't know how things will turn out. Uh, We can see how they turned out for Joseph and for Jesus, uh, and yet we don't know for ourselves. Uh, We pray especially for any here uh, this evening, Lord, who are going through a a really tough time. Uh, Help them uh, to trust you. Help us uh, to be encouraging and supporting them. We pray through it all that we might find you to be faithful and trustworthy. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.